Welcome to episode five of Women of the Military podcast. In today's interview, I interviewed Janet Appling. Janet served in the Army as an officer during the Vietnam War. And in this episode, we talk about what led her to military service, some of the challenges she faced as a female in the service, and what she did in the Army. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Are you about to face a deployment? Do you have questions about the deployment experience and don't know where to start? I know exactly how you feel and that's why I created a free guide to help you prepare for your deployment. Check out the free guide at www.airmentomom.com slash free resources. Our guest today is Janet Appling. Welcome, Janet. I'm so excited to have you here and hear a little bit of your story. Can you give us a brief introduction about yourself? I'm a first-generation American. Both my parents were born and, and spent most of their childhood in Lithuania. But they came over here during uh, just before World War One, and my dad served in World War One. We've always been instilled with a, a love for the new country that, that they came to. Um, I'm married. I have two sons, and I have three granddaughters. I'm been married for 50. Well, we just fit, we just met, finished our celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. I did want to say that you have served in the military, and so let's talk a little bit about why you decided to join the military. Well, it's it, it's kind of three-sided because of my love of the country, uh, which, like I said, has been instilled by my parents. I uh, feel you know rather patriotic, and I grew up in an era where we went to school and we sang the national anthem in the morning. We said the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, to the flag in the morning. And I was very upset kind of when we went into the Vietnam War, which wasn't called a war. And uh, I wanted to do something. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is it's kind of personal and and kind of frivolous. I lived in a small town of about 4,000, and after I was after I graduated from college, I was teaching there. And having dated all the eligible men, <laughs> I decided it was time to move on, but I didn't want to know what I wanted to do, so I started looking into the military options. One of the reasons is I wanted to travel, and I, like I said, I was looking at the military because, again, like a young kid, I was I was looking at things like which uniform looks the nicest, which is kind of silly. But once you get in, it's different. And the frivolous little ideas of why you join are kind of immaterial. That makes sense. I can relate to that. And when did you join the military? In 1966. It was during the Vietnam War. And uh, it was kind of a, a, a rough time because it was not a very popular war. And being basically a very independent free thinker, I uh, decided that this was something I wanted to support. Uh, a lot of my par- a lot of my friends and my parents said, "Why?" And I said, "Just because." And another comment was, uh, "What will the neighbors think?" Because when women joined the military during that time, they uh, incurred a reputation, whether it was true or not, was immaterial. And so I kind of laughed at my mother when she said, what will the neighbors think? And I 
turned around and said, Mom, you know how you raised me. I really don't care what the neighbors think. You know what I what my moral standards are and what you know my life is like. And she just looked at me kind of funny and said, "Well, it's your idea and your thoughts and your life. So I guess you're going to have to you know make that decision on your own." That's interesting that someone that they would question like, "What what will the neighbors think?" Um, is that so? That was a common, I guess, pitfall or challenge for women who are considering joining the military during the Vietnam era. It very definitely was. Only girls who were interested in, in a loose life supposedly joined the military because of all the men there. And, you know, they could have all the men they wanted. Well, that wasn't why I went. Right. I was supporting an ideal. I mean, I understand that. That's why I joined. But I didn't even think about, like, the mindset of culture and the history of um, what it was like. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to join? Because I know that when you join, you kind of joined and then you became an officer and can you talk about that process and what happened? Sure. Because I had a college degree and I had been teaching, I was offered a direct commission into the army and uh because of that I did not go through, you know, things like ROTC or not the boot camp that most of the uh, enlisted women go through. Our boot camp for the officers was primarily classroom work with some field exercises. We had uh, maintained the physical aspects of, of uh, boot camp. We did go out into the field and camp. I look back at it now, it was more like a lark than, than anything really serious. And basic training was a lot of fun. Maybe it was because I was a little bit older than some of the women there, but uh, I thought it was kind of fun to to live in a dorm like we did. We had cubicles with two people to a cubicle, and uh, we went through a lot of the same things that the enlisted women did because we had to make sure that our floors were polished and our uniforms were, you know, just so, and, and our lockers were lined up in a specific you know, way. Our beds had to be made just so, and, and uh, it was really a, a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things that I remember as, as being funny but not funny we were told that our floors were supposed to be shiny like mirrors. And when we waxed the floor, some of the girls got down on their hands and knees and they polished it with Kotex. And it was so shiny, it was like a mirror. But uh, when the officers came in to inspect, one of them stepped on the floor funny and slipped and fell. And then that wasn't quite as funny as, as we thought it would be. And we were reprimanded and said, never to do that again. <laughs> I laugh at it now because we were trying to be silly. It could have hurt somebody. Right. I was gonna say most of our most of our boot camp was was classroom work. We learned a lot of regulations. We learned theory. Uh, we were being prepared to be the support to the men in the unit, and uh, we had to know and, and be their reference point. So the the field stuff was kind of fun rather than than seriousness. Uh, most of it was in the classroom. And we kind of already touched on it a little bit when you were talking, but as being a woman in the military, there's already, you're going into a situation where there's already this stereotype that the only women join are loose women. Face any type of sexual harassment or struggles while you were in the military? Yeah. (laughs) You have to face the fact, and in some ways it really hasn't changed. Uh, It was a good old boy network, and uh, we weren't really wanted there. Because we thought we were supposed to be, you know, helpless and and weak and and not have 
the brains of much more than an idiot, I guess. We just weren't supposed to be there. So we got challenged. We got made fun of. They made fun of us physically by, you know, whistling and, and, and making snide comments. But you uh, you learned to uh, ignore it, or you had to if, if you were going to survive. They thought we were there for their pleasure, and uh, there was a lack of respect for us. You know, it was, it was difficult. It was very difficult. I can't even imagine. How were you able to get past that, mainly just by ignoring it, or were there anything, any other things you used to help cope with it? Well, it really didn't do much good to complain. Because, like I said, it was a good old boy network. You were you were the oddball in the group. If you complained, they just said, well, you know, you asked for it. Well, no, we didn't ask for it, but we got it anyway. The, you know, the snide remarks or the, the sexual jokes right. that were told in our presence simply because we were there. So, uh, and like I said, we, you know, different women handled it in different ways. I just ignored it. Um in some cases, I pretended like I didn't hear what was going on, and that didn't mean it hurt any less, but uh, it was just my way of dealing with it, because there wasn't any support from the military, from the men in the military who were in the upper echelons. As you continue to serve in the military, do you feel like the culture has changed at all, or just, or did you, or do you think that's something that women, I don't think we face it in the same way, but I still feel like it's something that women do deal with while serving? I don't think it's as severe because it's been so long since, you know, women have been in the military and there's more and more of us who are there. A lot of the older officers and and NCOs who were there when I was in there are no longer active. And so as society changes slowly, so did the military, but it's still there. I ran into it even after I got out of the service and stayed in the reserves. One of the examples was I went down to uh, Fort Meade, Maryland when I was in the reserves. And uh, I was my my MOS was a, a personnel officer. And so I was sent down to work on personnel records at, at Fort Meade. And the special troops commander was a colonel who was one of these um, physical fitness nuts. And if you were announced overweight, he got down on you. Well, I just had two children. And yes, I was overweight, but I was still in good shape. I had I looked good in my uniform. But he would call me into his office every morning for two weeks and just read me up one side and down the other because I was overweight. And it reached the point where I was practically in tears some mornings. And the major that I was working for in personnel pulled me aside and said, what's going on? And I told him. And he said, well, try and ignore him. And I said, well, I do. And I said, I try to stay out of his way, but he, you know, he'll send an orderly down to have me come up and get and, you know, meet with him. So he says, well, just do the best you can. He says, I think you're doing an excellent job here. He says, you've done more in two weeks than some of my guys do in six months. And he says, and don't worry about your your um, reports and, and your evaluation. Well, after I got home, I got my evaluation. It was all tens. And then there was a little post-it note on it saying, had a little bit of difficulty getting this past a certain individual. But as you can see, I did. So, you know, there were good guys there who respected us for what we were, but we also had the jerk who didn't. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's the way it is still today. There's, I think. There's yeah, it is. I think there are fewer of the ones that are 
chauvinistic and, and don't want us there than there were before. But there's still a few around who it all depends on what their I think their family bringing up was, do you respect women or are they there for your pleasure and, and strictly as, as your servant? And uh, that's what makes a difference. Well, let's shift our focus a little bit and talk a little bit about your career. Can you tell us what you did after boot camp? Sure. After basic training, I have to I have to emphasize this. One of the things they asked us when we were um, getting ready for our assignments is to put down where we wanted to go. And one of the reasons why I joined the military is to be able to travel some. So when I they asked me for where I wanted to work uh, on my first assignment, I said anywhere but Fifth Army area. I said, because I grew up in the 5th Army area, and so I wanted to see another part of the country. My first assignment was recruiting in Des Moines, Iowa, 5th Army area. It seemed to be typical. If, if you said you didn't want to be there, that's where they put you. Yep. And I was there for two years. I was responsible for recruiting in Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota, and I had two officers. I was commissioned as a first lieutenant because of my age and my experience, so I had two second lieutenants. Uh, working for me in Iowa and South, or in Nebraska and South Dakota, and it was interesting. I spent probably five days a week, most of the year, out on the road traveling to different schools, high schools, colleges, universities, and conducting recruiting meetings, plus the paperwork that goes along with it, and uh, checking on the two first, second lieutenants that I was responsible for. My second assignment, oh, during that first assignment, I got to uh, meet the Women's Army Corps commander, uh, Colonel Hoisington, and we were on television together doing a recruiting spot, and that was a real honor. Uh, she was a wonderful woman. My second assignment was a company commander at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. When they were getting ready to transfer me, uh, well, before that, when I was on recruiting duty, I called Washington to find out what my second assignment would be and whether or not I'd be able to go overseas. And the reason for this is I was in an apartment that I didn't like and I was looking at buying a mobile home. And they said, oh, you won't be going overseas. If anything, you'll go to a career college. And I called them two or three times about that. And they said, no, you, you, know, you won't be going overseas. So I went out and I bought a 60-foot mobile home, furnished it with good furniture, and I don't think I was living in that mobile home six months when I got a call from Washington saying, how would you like to go to Zaba, Japan? And I was ready. If I could have kicked somebody through the telephone line, I would have. <laughs> because I said, I can't. I can't afford to rent this out because I, you know, I knew what would happen to it. It would get trashed. So my other option was Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. It was known as Fort Lost in the Woods. So that's where I went as company commander. I didn't know it when I took the assignment, but the com the WAC commander, or the WAC CO, was in charge of a company of AWOLs and deserters. These were young women who had joined the military and decided they didn't like it. They didn't like the discipline. They didn't like the orders that they had to follow. And so they'd been picked up and returned to Fort Leonard Wood to be processed out. So I had a handful of 120 women. Most of them were women who didn't want to be there in the first place. And so <clears throat> it was an interesting assignment. The first week I was there, one of the girls had gone out and gotten drunk and came in through the back gate and flipped her car and killed herself. And I got a call at 11 o'clock at night asking me to come out and identify this young lady. Well, I hadn't been there a week, and I 
didn't know anyone really. So I called my first sergeant and we went out together and she said, yeah, this is who they thought it was. I got baptized by fire <laughs> after company commander. I was also community service officer, which uh, dealt with casualty notification in the area. And that was a very, very difficult assignment. I'm a rather emotional person in the first place, but then to have to deliver the casualty notices to families and be there and help them with you know, funeral arrangements and such. It was really, really hard because I ended up crying with the family. I had, I was on that assignment because it's a hard assignment uh, in that particular area off of Fort Leonard Wood. They were only on it for six months and then somebody else took it over. So after that assignment, I was made a supply officer and I was working with the personal items of people who had been killed during action or killed in service, had gone AWOL or deserted. And we had a whole warehouse full of all these things that were personal. And we they had to be processed in a timely manner. We were, had to keep them intact for nine months from the time that they were brought into the warehouse. And then they had to be disposed of through auction. So that basically was the extent of, of my active duty. I uh, stayed in the, the uh active reserves for two years after I left, even though I had already served my, my minimum time for my enlistment. And that was being sent to different posts. Uh, Fort Meade, Maryland was one of them. And after that experience, I decided I wasn't going to stay in the reserves anymore. And I went to the National Guard. And the National Guard in Wisconsin, I was the first non-medical female officer in the state in the Wisconsin National Guard. So I'm in the annals of history here. That's cool. When you were, when you first joined, you weren't married, but you did get married while you were in the service, right? Right. I met my husband uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. That was my first duty assignment in recruiting. It was at Fort Des Moines. And I had a horse that I'd owned before I went into the service. And so I brought her up to Des Moines and uh, had her in a public stables that people rented stalls and, and kept their animals there. And my stall was next to my husband's, or my future husband's. We shoveled manure together. <laughs> That's how we met. He wasn't in the military though, right? No, he was not. He was a civilian. He um, was born double club footed and he had tried to join. He was in the Air National Guard for a while okay. until they decided that with his, his double club feet, he really wouldn't be of any value to them. So then they classified him as 4F and let him out. So he, he never really got, he's not even entitled to VA benefits because he never was on active duty. And when did you guys get married? We got married in 1968 when I was getting ready to be transferred to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And being married to a civilian male is a challenge and a half. When I tried to get him an ID card, I was told that he couldn't have one, and I wanted to know why. And they said, well, because he can't have one. And I said, he's my dependent. Well, no, the men are the are, you know, the women are dependents of men. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm an officer. I'm married to a civilian male. He is my dependent, and therefore he's entitled to a dependent ID card. And finally, after a lot of arguing and bickering about it, he was issued one. And when we were at Fort Leonard, it was really funny because we'd go through the receiving line for the general and the poor adjutant was saying, this is Captain and uh, 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 Mr. Appling. 
Right. And they would get so flustered, I felt sorry for them. It was rather comical. But uh, it was a challenge to get medical help for them. Right. He'd show them his ID card. They said, but this is a dependent. Aren't you military? And he said, no, I'm a dependent. So it was a challenge the whole time we, I was on active duty. It was, it was again, you know, rather interesting because they didn't know what to do with him when we were on, on the post because he was, if he was a bail, he was supposed to be military, not a dependent. Right. That's kind of, that's kind of crazy that you had to argue to get what he, like his health care and all the dependent, you know, things that you get and they didn't understand. It's kind of weird. Again, this was at a time when women were not that common in the military. We were, we were breaking ground. Right. Oh, and we appreciate you for all that you did because I know. Well, I didn't realize what I was doing then. I was just living the life that I wanted to do. <laughs> and then you left the military. Why did you leave the military? Or leave, you didn't leave the military. You left active duty and did reserve. I left active duty, yes. Uh, I did that because I was pregnant. And at that particular time, the uh, military did not like women to be pregnant. As far as they were concerned, as soon as we had a child, we were no longer valuable people to them. We supposedly would be too interested in our children to be interested in, in what our jobs were in the military. We weren't supposed to be uh, able to handle two different areas of our lives. We weren't supposed to be able to be professional and a mother, too, which is silly because women do it all the time. In order to not be uh, discharged and lose my commission, immediately when I found out I was pregnant, by this time I was working in supply, so I was able to wear coveralls. And so I didn't, nobody knew that I was pregnant until. It was time for me to be released from the military, and that was about uh, not quite a month before the baby was due. I had been going to a civilian doctor for all my prenatal care. Because I, they offered me career college, and I refused to go to career college because I knew I was pregnant. They said, well, if you don't go to career college, you're going to be riffed out of the military because this is when they were starting to do a reduction in force because they were pulling people out of Vietnam. I said, well, you know, I guess I'm going to have to worry about being riffed out because I'm not going to go to career college. I'm not going to stay. But I managed to dodge the bullet for nine months. Um, I was lucky. I had a friend in Washington who would keep me posted as to what was going on. And when I found out the date of when I was supposed to be riffed out, I had better than a month's leave duty, a leave available to me. So I applied for my leave to coincide with just before they were going to riff me. And so I was gone for a month and I came back. I came back in August and I was riffed out of the military because of, of the reduction in force on the 8th of August. And my son was born on the 15th of September. Because I was pregnant when I was riffed out of the mil- out of active duty, he was born in, in the hospital there because it was service connected. So he cost me a whole $8. <laughs> I had to pay for civilian care in the nursery. And then when you when you left active duty, you went to reserves, and then right. And how how did that work with being a mom and the time and all the stuff? Those it really wasn't bad because at that time for the active reserve, I had uh, I didn't have to go to any meetings. I just had two weeks of of active duty 
training. Okay. And I didn't have to go to that uh, the first year that I got out. So my son was a year old before I had to do any active duty training. And at that time, my mother took care of, of my son while I was gone for the two weeks. So that turned out, you know, really quite well. And then why did you make the switch from the reserves to the National Guard? As I said, I had that one colonel that was a real jerk about the fact that I was, I weighed more than he thought I should. Right. And uh, I thought, I don't really need this kind of garbage. You know, I, I have a degree. I can teach school. I've got my son. Uh, my husband works. I, I just didn't think that that was something I wanted to do. And by that time, I had already met my reserve requirement, although my my uh, active duty had already satisfied my my enlistment requirement, but I never I never really got out. I just switched from the uh, reserves to National Guard in Wisconsin. What would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? Military life is challenging. It's fun. It's totally different than civilian life because when you go into the military. Whether you like it or not, you're being indoctrinated to learn to obey an order immediately without question because your life may depend upon it. You can question it later, but not at that moment because, like I said, your life may depend on it, or not, maybe not your life, but somebody else's life may depend on it. It's an opportunity to find out about different cultures. You meet people from all walks of life in the military. It is a challenge. But it's also a lot of fun. You meet friends that you, or you will make friends that are lifetime friends. Because when you're in the military, even when you get out, uh, you're part of a huge family and you belong. And a lot of women from uh, lower income areas who felt a need to belong to something special will find it very, very rewarding. Uh, in other cases, some might find it rather smothering. So it's something that you need to look at very seriously and consider what your goals are, what you want from life, and what the military can offer you. It can offer you an education. It can offer you a career. It's a challenge, uh, I think, more so than in civilian life. I wouldn't question not going, though. You wouldn't question not joining? No, because it would not meet some people's lifestyle. But I wouldn't discourage anybody from joining either. Uh, if somebody asked me, I would sit down and talk to them very seriously about what my experiences were and what, as a recruit, I had been taught to explain what their lifestyle would be like. And I would try to judge, too, from talking to them whether or not they would fit into the military lifestyle, because not everybody does. I think that's really good advice, because I feel like sometimes people think, oh, I kind of want to join the military, and they think that they have to if they look into it. But looking into it allows you to figure out if the military is for you, and it isn't for everyone. But if it is, it's a great place to be. No, it's not. Uh, you have to learn to be very disciplined. You have to be punctual, to be responsible. And unfortunately, in today's society, not all young women are. And if they're not willing to change and become this way, uh, it's not going to work for them. How did you feel that the military affected you as a person? If anything, I think I love my country more than I did before. I was very patriotic before I went in, but my heart pounds and, and I tear up at our national anthem and I didn't do that before. I'm proud 
that I was in the military. Um, I find it very rewarding to be able to, even in civilian clothes, salute our flag. I think it, it's, it's just given me a greater love and respect for my country. I'm so thankful that you took time out of your day to talk to me and share your experience. I feel that a lot of people don't know the stories of women who served in the military during the Vietnam era. So I feel super lucky that I was able to interview you for the podcast. And I'm just, I know that people will learn from your story and will be encouraged by the things that you share. So thank you for your time. You're quite welcome. It was my pleasure. I'm glad you're doing this project because there aren't enough people who understand what military life is like. In the area where I live right now, there are a lot of veterans and even the veterans' wives, even though they put up with with having their husbands deployed and they have to live virtually a single life with their families, don't always understand their husbands when they come back and that they're different. They've seen things that the normal individual does not see. They've experienced situations that the normal individual does not experience. And we need more understanding between the civilians and the, and the military veterans and the military people because our life as a military person is totally different than a civilian life.